If you don't have an email list, then you don't have a direct line to your customers. Reaching your clients, audience, supporters, and fans with the right message at the right time in the right place becomes easy when you've got a strategic email list in place. My email list is the number one way I drive profits in my business. And major bonus here, it's a lot easier and way more fun than you might think. That's why I'm teaching a free live workshop all about growing your email list called From Zero Subscribers or Zero Strategy to an Engaged Email List That Lasts. I'll show you how to kick off your email list building strategy with no fear because I know it can be scary to start something new in your business. Save your virtual seat at growanemaillist.com. Inside of my free live workshop, you'll learn why email marketing is 10 times more effective than posting on social media, my secret to sending out weekly emails without adding a ton of work to my plate, my best tips for getting people to hit subscribe, and what to actually say to them to convert them from subscribers to paying clients and customers. Save your seat now at growanemaillist.com. That's growanemaillist.com to get started with an email list strategy that drives real results. I'll see you at the masterclass. People who are more self-compassionate are more likely to follow through on hard projects. They're less likely to procrastinate. They're more likely to more quickly pick themselves up when things go badly. Just not beating yourself up is a good strategy for improving your performance. Hey, my name is Jenna Kutcher, and I am obsessed with all things business, marketing, numbers, and helping you to navigate both the messy and the magical seasons of this thing called life. I'm a small town mama who took a $300 camera, grew a successful photo biz, and now I work from home and run a seven-figure online business. I teach you the tried and true secrets to building a career you adore. Shy away from the real talk? (laughs) No way. Money, hardship, growth, loss, and marketing are all topics we discuss here. Think of this as your one-stop shop for happy hour with a gal pal mixed with business school. Pull up a seat, make sure you're cozy, and get ready to be challenged and encouraged while you learn. This is the Gold Digger Podcast. Are you happy? Scientifically speaking, do you have all of the components in your life that contribute to true happiness and well-being? Dr. Lori Santos is a professor at Yale University, among many other things, and she teaches a course called Psychology and the Good Life. Dr. Santos was motivated to design the class to address the alarming increase of young adults facing stress, anxiety, and depression by leading her students through the research and scientifically backed elements of happiness and well-being. That course became the most popular course ever taught at Yale University. Now she's transformed the course into an incredibly successful podcast called The Happiness Lab with a mission to share the latest research of happiness and well-being. As Dr. Santos shares in our conversation, it's not always the things we suspect that bring us true happiness. I love when we have the opportunity to speak with experts like Dr. Santos, and I'm personally excited to ask her about the misconceptions of happiness, methods of self-care that are actually scientifically supported, and what she anticipates will challenge us as we emerge from over a year in isolation and the trauma brought on by the pandemic. Here is Dr. Lori Santos. Welcome to the show, Lori. I am so excited to have this conversation with you today. Thanks so much for having me. Yes. Okay. So I am dying to know, where did your journey to study happiness and well-being begin? What is the story behind this story? 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I've been a, an academic psychologist forever, basically. You know, I've studied psychology for a really long time. But my interest in the science of happiness started when I took on a new role at Yale. I became a, a head of college on campus. And so Yale's one of these funny weirdo schools like Hogwarts and Harry <laughs> Potter, where there's like colleges within a college, you know? Yes. And so I'm I'm head of Silliman College, which means I, I live in this dorm with students, right? I eat with them in the dining hall and hang out with them in the student coffee shop. And in this new role, I really didn't like what I was seeing. I was seeing the college student mental health crisis up close and personal with like so many of my students reporting that they were just, you know, depressed and feeling anxious and overwhelmed. You know, I had, you know, students who were experiencing suicidality, right? It just wasn't, you know, what I thought college life should be like, right? And so the journey to the science of happiness was really that I wanted to do something to help my students. I really wanted to give them, you know, strategies that were evidence-based that they could use to feel better. And because, you know, I'm a nerdy professor, the best way to do that was, you know, to to teach a new class on it. So I developed this whole new class called Psychology and the Good Life. It was like a new class, you know, at this, you know, university. And so I thought like 30 or 40 students would show up. And so you can imagine my surprise when it became like the biggest class ever in Yale's history. Over a thousand students, a quarter of the entire campus showed up. And wow. Yeah, it was a little surreal, but it, it, you know, it really taught me that, you know, students are voting with their feet. They don't like this culture of feeling stressed and anxious and they wanted some strategies to do better. Wow. Was that intimidating? Like, I feel like when you come up with a new idea and you say a prayer that maybe one or two people will resonate with it, but was that overwhelming for you? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, a new, <laughs> if you went to college, you didn't probably don't realize like professors like stress out a lot about their classes. Yeah. It's a ton of work. And, you know, just having so many students having such a, an eye on it on campus and an eye on it beyond campus, you know, one of the amazing things about the class is it didn't just go viral at Yale, you know, yeah. A couple weeks in, we had a New York Times article about the class. We got all this press, you know, by like a month into the class, every single lecture, I had a member of the national or international press, like there to watch the class, like filming it. And, you know, there's like typos in your PowerPoint. You don't want it on like the Today Show, you know? (laughs) And so it was all just this really humbling, surreal experience. But I mean, even that viral nature of the class taught me like, so many people need these strategies, right? Like everybody's starved for these kinds of tips right now. Yeah. What a beautiful thing too, for people to self-select into that opportunity, into learning. I just think that's amazing because it also shows a level of awareness of Mm -hmm. not being content with the way things are and desiring more, which I think is beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It was really nice that, you know, this wasn't a class that was like forced on students, right? Yeah. So many students really thought, "I, I don't like this culture and I want some strategies that I can use to feel better. Yeah. So before we dive any deeper, I want to know, like, how do you define happiness? Is it physiologically? Is it universal? Is it individualized? I think this is an important point before we move forward. Yeah, yeah, totally. And so I think right at the outset, it's worth saying that, you know, happiness can be lots of things. There's probably more definitions of happiness, you know, as many definitions of happiness as there are people, right? You know, and when I teach the class and when I think about happiness, I use a very nerdy scientific, a social scientific definition of happiness. And so these days, psychologists think of happiness in two ways. Happiness is having joy in your life, and it's also having joy with your life. And so Mm. being happy 
in your life is really about experiencing positive emotions, right? You know, your ratio of laughter, joy, you know, all the good stuff should be, you know, pretty high relative to the negative stuff like sadness, anger, and so on. Not no negative things. You know, this is something we might talk about. You know, you want, you know, some negative emotion in there that's part of the human experience, but you want the ratio to look pretty good. That's being happy in your life. But being happy with your life is having a sense that your life matters. It's the answer to the Mm -hmm. question, all things considered, how satisfied are you with your life? And the interventions I talk about in the class are, are there to maximize both of those. I want you to experience more positive emotion, but I also want you to have more life satisfaction. It's worth noting that those dissociate, you know, there are t- definitely times in our life, you know, when one is higher than the other. Right now, my dean and my college, she and her wife have a newborn baby. And that is a time yep. when, you know, the, the happy with your life is amazing. Like you put this, you know, new child and so on, but the happy in your life, you know, there's dirty diapers, there's no sleeping, right? You know, it's a little rough, right? Yes. So it's worth knowing these dissociate. But for me, if you're high on both of those, like you got a pretty good life. Yeah. I've never heard it explained that way before I met you. And I think that it's beautiful because whenever I think about happiness, and I think I think about it a lot more these days being a mom to a toddler who's learning emotions and experiencing them in real time, is that there are two kind of subsets and and you can be one or both or neither. And I think that's a really beautiful way that it doesn't just give us this one linear goal or this idea of it, but that it kind of helps us to establish that there are different places and different forms of happiness. I think it's freeing to think about that. Yeah. And I think also this idea, you know, that I talk about a lot with my students that, you know, happiness isn't just like, you know, an extreme smiling emoji all the time, right? Like it has levels, right? You know, some of the things that might make you happy with your life, you know, take a little bit of challenge are really tough at times, right? And so you kind of want to be thinking about it at a really broad level. Yeah. So what would you say is most commonly misunderstood when we're talking about like elements of happiness and what it takes to achieve it? Yeah, I think the biggest misconception is that happiness is really about our circumstances, right? You know, Mm. so many of us have had the thought, like, I'll be happy when, like, I'll be happy, you know, when I get the perfect beach body, or I'll be happy when I get that new job, or I'll be happy when I get that new relationship or buy that thing, right? We, we think we have to change something to become happier. But if you look at the science, what it tells us is that circumstances don't necessarily matter all that much for our happiness with, you know, some nuance, right? Like if you're experiencing trauma, you know, if you don't have enough money to put food on the table, right? Like changing those things is going to increase your happiness. But for many of the people listening to this podcast, like changing your circumstances just isn't going to work in the way we think. And that's in part because we get used to our circumstances really quickly, whether those are good circumstances or bad. You know, you get the perfect new relationship, you know, two months in, you know, it's just your relationship. You're kind of not noticing it as much. You know, you get that huge raise, you know, weeks in, you're just spending that money and you're just like, you know, just at a new salary level and you don't notice it. And so what we need to do to become really happy isn't to change our circumstances, it's to change our behavior and to change our mindset. And that's that's not often what we think. When we think of pursuing happiness, we think of big changes, like yeah. life changes. What we really need are habit changes and behavior changes. Let's talk about those a little bit more. I, I'm super intrigued and I feel like 
I can be so transparent in saying that I was one of those people that avoided a lot of the necessary mindset work for as long as I possibly could, because I realized I would have to unearth past traumas or deal with limiting beliefs. And and that really causes you to get quiet with yourself and ask yourself, where are these thoughts coming from? Or where was I taught this? Or who did I learn this from? So talk to me a little bit about like the habits and things that you can slowly start to shift or at least become aware of in your life. Yeah, some of these habit shifts are really about your mindset and the way you're talking about it, right? I think we need to develop, first off, a mindset of presence, right? You know, in this crazy, distracted culture that we're all in, you know, it's really hard to just be there and notice, right? Research really shows that wandering mind is an unhappy mind, right? You know, to kind of really get the benefit of like life, you got to be present for it, which is something that that's really hard to do. But things like meditation, mindfulness training, those kinds of practices, which really bring us into more presence can have a really powerful impact on happiness. Another feature of mindset we need to work on is experiencing a bit more gratitude, right? Which is a little mm, countercultural yeah. right now. Like we're way more into the like canceling than appreciating these days, yes. right? You know, and for, you know, seemingly for good reason, like there's a lot of lousy stuff out there. You know, you and I are having yes. this conversation, you know, towards the tail end of a glo- hopefully tail end of a global pandemic, right? You yes. know, there's structural racism, sexism, like, you know, climate change, like there's nasty, nasty, awful stuff out there. But the research shows that if we want to have the bandwidth to deal with that nasty stuff, taking a time to experience a little bit of appreciation, thankfulness, gratitude is really the way to go. It's it's a way to improve your happiness, but it's also a way to improve what's called your self-regulation, your ability to do hard stuff, your ability to like not screw over your future self and just do the hard thing now. Research shows that more grateful people eat healthier. Grateful people tend to exercise more. They take care of their bodies more. Grateful people are more likely to save for the future. They're more likely to do the hard thing right now rather than yeah. kind of put it off. And so this active kind of appreciating what is there even the tiny things can really be a mindset shift that helps our happiness, but also helps our performance. Mm, I think that's amazing advice. And, and you kind of touched on this slightly, but let's dive a little bit deeper into this last year or year and a half, like what we've all collectively experienced with the pandemic. Do you think it will have lasting impacts on happiness and well-being for this generation that has learned to navigate in these challenging times? Yeah, I mean, I really think so. I mean, you know, the future of what happens after COVID-19 is uh, honestly anybody's guess. But, you know, this was a really lousy time. Like this was a dumpster fire for our collective mental health. And I think that recognizing that we've all gone through this tough time means there's the possibility of leaving with lasting changes, both in positive and negative ways. I think we assume that when you go through a tough time, the only possible reaction is something bad, right? The only reaction is stress or, you know, getting worse, right? We've all heard this term post-traumatic stress, but less people have heard of the equally, you know, scientifically interesting term of post-traumatic growth. There's lots of evidence that Mm -hmm. after trauma, sometimes people get stronger rather than kind of feel more stressed and and get weaker. And that post-traumatic growth occurs in a couple domains, the research suggests. One is that we kind of become more resilient. You don't sweat the small stuff anymore. You know, like if you have to yep. like take a day off of work or something's not working out, it's no global pandemic for like a year and a half, yes. right? Like it's not going to be that bad. So you wind up kind of not sweating the small stuff and being a little more resilient. There's also evidence for post-traumatic growth in terms of our social connection. Another habit we want to increase for improving happiness 
research shows that when you go through trauma, you recognize the people who really matter in life. I think a lot mm. of us are going through this in COVID-19 of like, do I really want to be in this relationship? You know, have I not yeah. prioritized my time with this friend enough or my time with my family members enough? People are really rethinking which stuff really works. And I think that's what you do in trauma. You recognize who's there for you, you know, really when push comes to shove. And then finally, with post-traumatic growth, you also see evidence that people come out of trauma with a bit more purpose and meaning in life. You know, if you mm. have a, a near-death experience, if you go through a really traumatic event, it kind of puts in perspective why you're here, you know, and what you really yes. want to prioritize and what you really want to do. So you kind of like, you know, get a sense of what matters and what's the BS in life. And, and all these things, I think, can be incredibly helpful for our resilience, for our happiness, and they come from going through a tough time. So my hope is that, you know, for a lot of us, COVID-19 could be, you know, kind of collective time of post-traumatic growth if we yeah. sort of play our cards right, if we kind of bring the best strategies that we can to this time. Just that mindset shift right there is absolutely transformative. And I think that it's really easy to look at both sides of the coin, the stress and the growth. But I think that one, they can coexist, right? Like we've definitely all navigated those stressful times, but we've also hopefully grown. And all of the ways that you suggested, I know me personally, through the pandemic, I think your priorities get strained out. I think you learn how to enjoy life in a simpler way. I mm -hmm. think you, you know, there's that other side of the coin, which I love that you're talking about, because I think it really challenges us to look at that in a whole different way. And I think that's really, really powerful. Gold diggers, we all know the B2B landscape can be a bit complex. From lengthy buying cycles to complicated decision-making processes, reaching your target audience can be tough. But I found a solution tailored just for you. LinkedIn ads. A whopping 79% of B2B content marketers say LinkedIn produces the best results for paid media. That's because with LinkedIn ads, you're not just casting a wide net and hoping for the best. You're strategically building relationships and driving real results. We're talking about a platform with over a billion members, including 180 million senior level executives and 10 million C-level executives. You are networking with the actual decision makers. And LinkedIn's targeting and measurement tools are specifically designed for for B2B marketers, meaning you're not wasting time or money on irrelevant leads. In fact, in the tech industry, LinkedIn ads have been shown to generate two to five times higher return on ad spend compared to other social media platforms. Using LinkedIn ads allows you to stay ahead of the curve when it comes to industry trends and developments, whether it's finding the perfect partner for a collaboration or uncovering new opportunities for growth, LinkedIn can be your secret weapon. Make B2B marketing everything it can be and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash goal to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goal. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Gold Diggers. Lately, I've been getting excited to finish furnishing our new home, which is why I want to tell you about a brand that we absolutely love, which is Article. I have been a fan and a customer of Article for years. I'm always blown away by the curated assortment of furniture styles they offer. They have mid-century modern, coastal, industrial, Scandinavian, and even boho designs. There is something for everyone, no matter your taste. In our last house, we had their sofa and leather chairs. At our lake house, we have their dining table and chairs, 
We also just ordered some of their outdoor furniture for our new patio. Like if you can't tell, we are obsessed with Article. The quality and style are top notch. Article's online only model means that they can offer some great prices with fast and hassle-free delivery. Pick the delivery time that works for you and they keep you updated every step of the way. Article's customer is also amazing. They're knowledgeable, friendly, and always there when you need them. If you're like me and you're itching to give your home a makeover, I highly recommend checking out Article. They believe in delightful design for every home. And thanks to their commitment to style, quality, and affordability, it's never been easier to transform your space. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash gold digger and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash gold digger for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Yeah. So one thing I want to talk about, because I'm just so curious, is all of this focus on self-care, right? Like this is a movement that's really taken hold. And in the last year, it seems like people have been really promoting self-care in a new way. It's almost like people are kind of done with the hustle culture, the burnout culture. And there is a deeper focus on prioritizing on our well-being, especially when we were navigating the pandemic. So I'm curious, like, what would you say are some scientifically backed methods of self-care as it relates to happiness and well-being? Are there any? Is it all a hoax? Walk (laughs) me through this. I'm so curious. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, there are definitely science-backed ways that you can care for yourself and kind of boost your well-being. I worry, though, about the term self-care because I think it yes. sets us off on the wrong path, right? This this idea of self-care really conjures up this idea of like selfish care, right? Yes. Like me, 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 like treat yourself, right? And if you look at the research, the research shows that self-care doesn't usually look selfish. Usually self-care is other-oriented. Self-care involves like connecting with people, right? Like making time for your friends and family members, just literally hanging out with other people. Research shows that a necessary condition for high happiness is the feeling that you're socially connected is like being around other people. But more than that, the research shows that self-care can really be about doing for others too. Mm. You know, the science shows that people who donate more money to charity, people who spend their time on volunteer activities, they're happier than people that don't controlled for income and controlled for the amount of free time you have. And so, you know, because sometimes when we're thinking of self-care, we think we have to do for ourselves. Like we have to buy ourselves a bubble bath or like treat ourselves to a nice glass of rosé or something. And that's ironic because the research shows that money spent on other people will make us happier. So every time you want to kind of buy that bubble bath for yourself or treat yourself to a glass of rosé, that's a time to like, you know, send that bubble bath to a good friend or treat your coworker to a really nice bottle of wine. That's not what we think, but the science shows that we get a bigger happiness boost if we spent on others than if we spent on ourselves. That is so fascinating. I love that you bring up to self-care and this thought of selfish, because I think that we have deeply intertwined that idea. And so reframing that actually feels really exciting. I think that's really great. Have you noticed people getting more creative with what that looks like if you flip the script and look at serving others? Because I think we've had to get really creative this past year on what it looks like to show up for other people. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, just physically showing up and being socially connected has been trickier, right? You know, you have to do that in a way that's physically safe in COVID. But again, I think people have gotten really creative with that. You know, I have friends who, you know, do lots of Zoom yoga with one another. You know, I've been setting up a like Zoom spa night with my college roommates. I think what this pandemic has taught us in terms of 
social connection is that it, it doesn't have to be just with the people in your zip code, right? Or the yes. people in your time zone, right? Like you can use technology to connect with these people you care about who might've you know, been in a different part of your life and you can kind of reconnect with them. Yeah. But I also think the pandemic's giving us a few ways that we can be other oriented in this kind of pro-social or doing for others way. You know, many of us are getting these little windfalls that, you know, we don't notice that much, but we could use in a more other oriented way. So I'm thinking about things like little mini windfalls in terms of money, you know, like, you know, not everybody's getting this, but some of us are like, you know, not paying as much on our commute because we're working from home, you know, so we're saving, I don't know, the subway fare. Or some of us are, for example, you know, not going out for coffee as much. You know, I know personally, yes. I don't swing by my coffee shop as much. <laughs> you know, I'm not going out to eat or buying clothes for parties or things like that. These are yeah. little bits of money, but there's stuff that we can use now that we weren't spending before that we might be able to spend, you know, on someone else, you know, so maybe you donate that money you're not spending on your latte to a local business or you use it to yeah. just buy a little, you know, gift for a friend of yours that you haven't, you know, connected with in a bit. That's the money side, but I think some of us, again, not all of us, but some of us are getting little mini windfalls in terms of time. Again, not everybody, if you're like remote schooling kids or, you know, you, you mentioned you have a toddler, it might be tricky. <laughs> yes. But again, that commute time, right? You know, that's 10 minutes here and there we could use in a positive way to text a friend and check in or try to, you know, set up a time, you know, with a colleague of ours to, you know, get a Zoom drink or something. You know, the time that we're saving, again, not going to those parties, not going to concerts or movies, that's free time that we sometimes Sometimes think, oh, that's like plop down and watch Netflix time, which is fine. Yeah. But yeah. we're doing that maybe at an opportunity cost of ways of connecting with other people and ways of doing for other people. So recognizing like, hang on, even though I'm feeling a little time strapped or money's tight, there, there are these little windfalls that you know are just there. You might be able yeah. to use those in more happiness productive ways. And the happiness productive ways are often other oriented ways. Mm. I think that's so powerful. When you think about like given the nature of entrepreneurship, so so many of our listeners are entrepreneurs or side hustlers or like really big dreamers and often as a solo endeavor and it requires some incredible sacrifice in pursuit of financial goals. I want to know, do you believe that entrepreneurs might be especially prone to seeking things that don't actually bring us happiness? Like I know for me, I left the ladder climbing corporate job only to build build my own ladder and not like where it was leaning. So let's walk through this idea. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is, you know, gets back to the misconception we mentioned about, you know, circumstances don't make us as happy as we think. And I think one of the biggest circumstances we get wrong is circumstances having to do with money. Like, yes. you know, we know oh, money doesn't make you happy, but kind of we think that if we could be successful and have all the accolades that go with getting money, we would be happier. Otherwise we wouldn't, mm -hmm. you know, be chasing that as a carrot so much, you know, all your entrepreneurs wouldn't be working as hard. You know, they'd be taking 10 hours off a week if they weren't as worried about that paycheck, right? And the research shows, again, you know, just like with the circumstances stuff, if your circumstances are dire, if your financial situation is awful, you can't put food on the table or a roof over your head. Yes, getting more money will definitely help. You know, we need a living wage, like, you know, to kind of protect people's happiness. But that said, once you get past a certain point, that relationship doesn't hold anymore. We kind of have a sense of like, oh, you know, if you're really poor, getting more money will make you happy. But that correlation drops off. And in yes. some research, there's evidence that in the U.S. right now, it drops off at around $75,000. That's uh -huh. the point at which like if you double or triple your salary after that, you're just not going to get any corresponding benefit in terms of reducing your stress, improving your positive emotion. It just doesn't do what we think. And so 
that's a tough pill to swallow, I think, for a lot of yes. really driven people, right? You know, I think we just assume more is going to be better, but the answer is that it just isn't. And so I think one thing to think about for entrepreneurs is to really try to come to terms with what you're doing this for. Is it really about, you know, the eternal paycheck or is it about something else? Is it about reaching people? Is it about doing good in the world? Is it about, you know, trying something courageous? Is it about a zest for life and excitement about creating? Those latter things have nothing to do with a paycheck. What they map onto is what social scientists call our character strengths. These kinds of, you know, values that we have that some of us really resonate with. You know, some of us really think of ourselves as having a zest for life or being courageous or loving learning. You know, there's big kind of lists of these things. And the research shows that if you're pursuing a job or pursuing a career that allows you to exercise those strengths, then you're going to be happier. In fact, if you're pursuing a career or a job that allows you to exercise the particular strengths that you value the most in life, what some scientists call your signature strengths, that's going to be a career that fulfills you. And so it kind of has nothing to do with money in these ways we don't expect. You can find people who are fulfilling their strengths with all kinds of low-paying jobs. And what you find is that they're as happy in their work as some people who have you know, more traditionally high-paying, more traditionally creative jobs. If your job has kind of gotten you away from the signature strengths that really matter to you, then you know you might need to do a little of what my colleague Amy Resneski calls job crafting, where you kind of Without changing, you know, what like your job description really is or what your you know, the particular project you're working on, try to pivot more towards things that are going to allow you to exercise your strengths. And Amy's work shows that you can do this really in any occupation. In fact, she picks a very unglamorous occupation. She looks at hospital janitorial staff. And she finds that janitorial staff who know that they're engaging with their signature strengths, who really try to build that in, in ways of like connecting with patients or trying to give more hope, you know, to the sick people that they work with, or, you know, really just trying to do things creative in terms of even how they place the plants and things, right? Hospital workers who are bringing in those kinds of strengths and particularly the strengths that they resonate with most, they're happier and they see their job as a calling. You know, they see a job that involves, you know, cleaning floors for sick people as a calling in life just simply because of the way they reframe things. And so I think that has, you know, a lot of kind of advice that provides a lot of advice for how we can think about changing our jobs and our careers around to be a little bit happier. I'm so excited that you talked about the statistic of $75,000 annual because I actually was researching it not long ago because I was curious about the threshold where, you know, if you 10x your income, you're not 10 times happier. There's got to be that tipping point, right? And I think it's so interesting because I think that our culture, and I absolutely at times have been so fascinated and, and driven by the idea of a six-figure salary. And I remember the day as a wedding photographer, when I hit six figures, I remember showering in my shower using the same herbal essence shampoo <laughs> and thinking, absolutely nothing feels different. I don't feel different. My life isn't different. My bank account maybe looks different, but it's just numbers on a screen. What would you say in terms of like the cultural aspect and that drive for like more, 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 like how do we start to shift that? Because I think that's something that it's inbred in us, but also, you know, the messaging around that is so powerful that it can become this captivating idea for us to chase. Yeah, I love that you brought up the story of, you know, the moment you notice, like you have this yeah. idea in your head, like six figures and you hit it and you're like, 
wait, that was what? supposed to be a lot cooler and more exciting yeah. than I feel. Um, my <laughs> example that I use in my classes, you know, th- these days, college students, like they do this thing. That I have no idea why college students do. College <laughs> students would be so weird, but they film their reaction to looking at their admissions outcome, you know, so they're going to about to click on the button to tell them whether or not they get into Yale and they film that. And when they get in, they get so excited and so on. So there's all these admissions videos of my students finding out they got into Yale, you know, very excitedly. My students will say like, yeah, in that video, I screamed and I jumped around. But about 30 seconds later, I was like, oh, like, okay, now I just have more homework to do. And now I'm pre-med and now I'm like just chasing the next carrot. Like we put these kind of moments in these circumstances, like really high and we predict affectively that they're going to feel amazing. But in practice, you're like, okay, I'm still the same person. You so quickly get used to it. And so, you know, so how do you recognize that, right? Like, how do you get off that, that what scientists call a hedonic treadmill, where you're just like chasing the next thing? I think part of it is to, to recognize that it exists, right? To notice in your own life, like, wait a minute, last time when I got to, you know, six figures, like that didn't really make me happier. I bet if I think about the same way with seven figures, seven figures is also not going to work. You know, I think we can kind of do the wrong general which you, you know, in your case, it's like, well, maybe it wasn't six figures, maybe I need to get to seven figures, or maybe I need to get to eight figures, right. But recognizing that the generalization should be that we mispredict these things that our circumstances don't matter as much as we think. Another strategy, I think, really is to kind of go back to this idea of being present, being mindful, right? You need to kind of notice what feels rewarding in your life. And this is kind of a, just a, a bigger, dumb feature of our mind, which is that the things that we really like, the things that we actually find rewarding, they're not necessarily the things that we want or that we crave or go after. Research shows, neuroscience research shows, this is like looking at the circuits in the brain, that the circuits of the brain that code what we want, what we crave, what we're basically going to put lots of motivational effort into, what we like stress ourselves out about, those things are completely different than the things that we actually like, which is a really Mm. stupid way to design a brain. But, you know, when you realize it, it makes so much sense, right? You know, think about you know, for me, I'm like a, you know, try not to be, but I'm like totally a sugar junkie, right? Like I really want that cupcake or I really want, you know, that extra piece of dessert, you know, and I like crave it. If it's in the fridge, I'm like thinking about it during the day and then I get it. And I'm like, okay, it's kind of still like, I didn't really like it that much, you know, you know, or like, you know, you can get in your head about, you know, getting that, getting this accolade. Like I really need to get to this point in my career. I need to win this award or get this publication in, in academia, right? And then you get it and you're like, okay, that wasn't as great as I thought. But then there's there's also the reverse, right? Like people differ on this, but I like never crave like a really rigorous workout. I'm never like, I like, like in the way I crave a cupcake, right? Like I'm never like, oh my God, I want <laughs> like thinking about it all day. Like after the work, I'm going to like beat myself up on the elliptical. It's going to be so awesome. Yeah. But then when I do it, it feels awesome. And I'm like, why don't I do this more often? Or yes. same thing sometimes with like social connection. Sometimes I yes. think I'm really going to want to like plop down and watch Netflix. But when I actually do that, it's not as rewarding as I thought. It's kind of apathetic, but you know, doing something challenging or hanging out with a friend, putting effort in, that feels really good. And so part of the problem is that we have these brains that are are pushing us, motivating us with certain assumptions about how those rewards are going to feel when we get them. And then we yeah. get them and then they don't really work. And then we we have brains that also don't have a clue about motivating us towards the stuff that's really going to be good for our well-being if, if we engage with those practices. And so For me, what that's taught me is like, I have to be really mindful and very explicitly pay attention to what feels good because I can't trust my like natural motivational systems to do it for me. 
On top of my many titles as mom, entrepreneur, and creative, I've also added host. Drew and I host on Airbnb on our favorite island in Hawaii. We started hosting as a way to make some extra income, and we've had such an easy breezy experience. Now we host year after year, and it's been a fantastic side hustle. Not to brag, but we've also been crowned Airbnb Superhost several times, so we are really killing the game. It's about having spaces we can enjoy as a family while creating memorable experiences for our guests, and it helps that we earn a little extra cash on the side. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's super powerful. I, I love how it's almost like permission to like really listen to yourself more. And I think something I've found, and and I'm trying to explain this in the right way, but I've been in rooms with a lot of very, very successful entrepreneurs. Most of them are men. And my husband and I usually leave these events and we get home and we're eating takeout sushi on the floor and we're watching our baby monitor. And and I just remember this moment where we just laughed because it was like, you know, I might have been the lowest earner in that room, but I I carried myself with the most contentness and recognizing that being content is not being complacent. And mm-hmm. I think that those two things can get really confused these days. Yeah. Am I on to something with that thought? Because as an achiever, I used to think being content just meant you didn't care anymore, that you weren't driven. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think this this is a common misconception. It's about contentment, but it's also about giving yourself a little self-compassion, right? Like just yeah. giving yourself a little grace. I think there's a sense that if we go about giving ourselves some grace that, you know, that's weak, right? You know, this idea of yeah. compassion is sort of weak, right? But the research shows just the opposite. People who are more self-compassionate are more likely to follow through on hard projects. They're more likely to mm. get through deadlines. They're less likely to procrastinate. They're more likely to more quickly pick themselves up when things go badly in their career or in many of the studies, it's students. So in their academic life, like just not beating yourself up is a good strategy for improving your performance. But we kind of think like, no, to be a high achiever, I have to like beat myself up. I have to be this horrid inner drill sergeant all the time. But like, that's just, again, a mistake that our minds are making. If we just recognize our common humanity. Look, I'm not going to be perfect all the time. And that is okay. Right. I need to mindfully pay attention to how I'm doing. Right. I need to treat myself like I would treat my best friend if I saw her burning Mm -hmm. out. Right. These are not things we often think in part because we think like, oh, well, uh, if I I could do that, but then I'll just be a loser and my business will never be successful and I'll never get all the accolades. And we're just wrong. We're not just wrong that, I mean, obviously self-compassion will feel better. Giving yourself some grace feels better, but it also makes us perform better we have to kind of come around to the fact that your contentment, you're like not burning out. These things wind up allowing you to achieve whatever it is that you want to achieve professionally, not just even in terms of yeah. your happiness. Of course it works for that. But your story about kind of, you know, you being like the most content person also leads me to another thing I think we get wrong, which is in our quest for accolades and our quest for money, we sometimes have an opportunity cost of something that really does matter for happiness. Yeah. And that's yeah. having a little bit of free time. There's a lot of work these days in social science on this concept of what's called time affluence. This is the like subjective sense that you have some free time, that if you were to, you know, look in your GCAL, there'd be space there as opposed to it's packed, packed, packed to the brim. Time affluence is the opposite of what many of us feel, which is what's called time famine, where we're literally starving for time. And, you know, we're, we're learning scientifically that 
time famine works physiologically a lot like hunger famine, where you're putting your body under stress, you're you know triaging things, you're making poor decisions. It's like you're hangry basically, but you're like time greedy <laughs> or something. And it has a huge hit on our well-being. In fact, one study shows that if you self-report being time famished a lot of the time, that's as bad for your well-being as if you self-report being unemployed. We know, you know, especially wow. during COVID, like being unemployed has a huge hit on your happiness. But if you're yes. just super busy all the time, that you're you're giving yourself that same hit. And so one strategy is to really make sure you're making good use of time. Like that alone can yeah. improve your happiness. Yeah. It's also to sometimes give up money to get back more time, you know, yes. and to frame frame your decisions as such. You know, some of us, you know, during COVID might have gotten, you know, food delivery or curbside pickup or something. You know, next time you do that really do a calculation of how much time you saved. You know, you get that veggie burger and fries like that was veggies. I didn't have to chop up or like potatoes. I didn't have to fry or dishes. I didn't have to do or a grocery store. I didn't have to drive to that was, mm, you know, 2.5 hours I saved, right? Just doing that calculation can make you feel like, Oh, I have a breath, you know, fresh air. And that's true. You know, anytime you're sort of spending money to get time back, another great strategy for improving time affluence is to make really good use of what researcher Ashley Willens calls time confetti. So one funny scientific finding is it turns out we have more free time now than we did like five or 10 years ago, not just during COVID, but like in general. The problem is our free time is broken up into really stupid pieces. Like, you know, (laughs) that five minutes before the Zoom meeting or, you know, the 10 minutes when your kid falls asleep early. That's what Willens calls time confetti. Like these little pieces of time that are like floating around. And we tend not to use those wisely it feels like that's just four minutes, you know, like what are we going to do in four minutes? But she finds that, you know, using your time confetti well can make you feel more time affluent, but it can also make you happier, especially if you're using your time confetti, not just to like tick off more things in the to-do list, not to like write half an email. It's going to stress you out as you run to your next meeting, (laughs) but like to really do things that are going to promote well-being. So she recommends making a time confetti wish list, like a time confetti to-do list. I love that. So when you have, you know, your kid falls asleep or you're like, oh my gosh, I have eight minutes that I didn't expect. Like you can look on the list and see, oh, I should, you know, write in my gratitude journal or I should text a friend and just, you know, you know, give a compliment or, you know, do something nice for someone. Like that time confetti wish list for me has been really helpful. Cause when you get the five minutes, the for me it's like the social media or email check is like very salient, right? But you know, (laughs) take a moment to breathe, you know, five deep breaths. Like I tend not to remember is a thing I can do, but when I do those things, I feel so much better. This is so, so inspiring to me because as you were speaking, I'm like, wait, you are spot on in the sense of like, I genuinely am able to and afforded to and have the privilege to look at time as my currency. And it allows me to, you know, exchange money to buy back my time. But especially like as a a mom, when I went into my first year of motherhood, I actually blacked out my entire calendar, which was just such a blessing because I wanted to have wide open spaces. I didn't know how I would be able to navigate motherhood. I didn't know what it would feel like. I didn't know if I wanted to work or travel or be on stages or if I just wanted to be home. And it allowed me that freedom and that feeling of time, which then I think compounded into understanding just how valuable our time is. And I think hopefully people have had experiences in this past year where they do have that extra time like you're talking about to kind of see where they can spend it and to almost get quiet with themselves to check in enough to really ask, what do I want to do next? Yeah, I think, you know, we can have these moments where we 
notice how good it feels to have free time, even sometimes in moments where we're not making as much money. Or, you know, I think a lot of people who've had job circumstances change during COVID have noticed this, right? You know, maybe you're not getting as many hours or, you know, maybe you've even lost your job or something, but people realize like, wait a minute, I don't want to be sprinting around so much. I don't want to be doing so much. You know, I experienced this a lot myself when COVID hit because, you know, as a happiness expert, I'm called upon a lot to like give lots of talks and colloquia and, you know, like keynote addresses and these things. And I was, you know, flying around all the time, you know, to give these things and COVID hits and, oh, you know, no one's having conferences or if they're doing, they're doing that virtually. And like, I realized like, wow, it is nice not to be sprinting to the airport in the moment. It is nice not to like be getting up at four in the morning to like hop on some plane to Chicago. And now as that's easing up and people are thinking about doing live events again, I'm saying no to a lot more because I noticed and mindfully saw firsthand that there was a real opportunity cost in terms of my time for that stuff. And so I think any of these moments, whether it's, you know, changing your family, having a child, you know, changing your career around, it's worth noticing the kinds of things that are really bringing you contentment because they're not often the like accolade seeking things that we think they'll be. So I'm dying to know, as a happiness expert, how does happiness look in your life? And have you had pressure around it? Or, or what does that look like? Because I often feel like we're experts in the things we need the most. Like mm-hmm. we're teaching what we need to be the student of. Have you experienced that? Or what has your experience been with it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I got into this field mostly because I was so worried about my students. But, you know, if I'm being honest, I also saw a lot of myself in them, right? I saw them, yeah. you know, foregoing their social connection because they were working so hard in their classes. And like, you know, I was doing that for papers and things, you know, I saw them, you know, really prioritizing like accolades and going after stuff. You know, I I was seeing a lot of what they were doing to themselves and myself. And so this process of learning these strategies and teaching these strategies, you know, with my students and on my podcast, it's been one where I have to practice what I preach, you know, or I look like an idiot, right? You know, if I'm like complaining and not being grateful, or if my students see me frantically, like, you know, being too busy, like, they'll call me out on it. Yale students love to call you out if you're like, you know, being a hypocrite about things. And so that means I have to follow this advice and it helps, right? If you're practicing what you preach, if you're following these habits, if you're trying to engage with these mindsets, like, you know, the studies show you're going to feel happier. And it's no surprise that when you do that, you know, that I've done that, I've, I've been feeling happier. And so, Yeah. So it's really changed my life around a lot, not because I know this content, but because Mm -hmm. I have this sort of social excuse that I really have to put it into practice or, you know, again, I'm going to, I'm going to get called out by my students, (laughs) but that's been great. I mean, do I follow all my advice all the time? Absolutely not. Have my intuitions (laughs) changed? No, like it still feels to me like, oh my gosh, I should be pursuing, you know, the next financial thing or like the next accolade, you know, do I realize that time is important? Yes. Is it easy to protect my time? No. So you know, your intuitions don't change and you're not perfect all the time. But I think you bring in at least some of the habits, which do yeah. have a positive effect. And particularly the habit of mindfully paying attention causes me to notice when I'm off track a little bit. And and then yeah. you can shift gears a bit. That's amazing. I want to know, so let's talk about kind of your own entrepreneurial pursuits in a sense. You transformed your highly successful class into an amazing podcast. What has that evolution been like for you? 
Yeah. And so, you know, we, we realized that so many people were interested in this fact that, you know, a yeah. quarter of the Yale student body was taking this class on happiness. And we thought that just means that a lot of people need these tips. And so we started this podcast called The Happiness Lab, which is kind of a nice podcast version of some of the stuff I teach. And it's been really fun in part because, you know, so many of these happiness strategies, you kind of learn by hearing how they play out, right? So it allows yeah. for a really fun way to share these studies using some narrative, right? Like telling people stories, hearing how people, you know, got these happiness strategies, right? Or how they got them wrong. And it's just been a really fun process to get people to learn more about the science through these fun stories. Mm, it's so amazing. And I love how it's making all of this information even more accessible when, when we are a generation self-selecting. Like I do want to learn. I want to understand more. I think it's just really exciting. So I need to know what is bringing or supporting your happiness right now. Give it to me. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's really supporting my happiness right now, I'm not sure if you, you emailed me directly, but I have this really over the top away message that just basically <laughs> says, that basically says, I'm so sorry, you probably emailed me about something cool, but like, I'm really on this project to protect my time athletes right now, which means I can't do any more cool stuff. I'm so sorry. Like, you know, maybe that will change in the future, but right now I have yes. to prioritize this different thing. And that has been super, super helpful because people feel really guilty, you know, putting one more thing on your plate when you've just told them for my own yep. well-being and to protect my own my myself against burnout. I'm really saying no to everything right now. You know, people are like, oh, okay, I guess my, you know, <laughs> conference paper that I was going to ask you to do is not that important. And that's like a preemptive no that I say a lot. Yes. So that's been been really, really useful. For me during the pandemic, it's been being especially intentional about social connection. I can't tell you how many yeah. Zoom yoga classes or Zoom spa nights I've scheduled you know, walk socially distanced walks with friends for me. And I think this is true for lots of the entrepreneurs listening, like, you know, both COVID-19 and the general nature of the work means you might not be getting social connection in the same way. You might not go to yeah. office and have the office water cooler chat. Like you really got to build it in much more. And, and that the nature of the kind of natural social connection you might not, that you might be getting, like, you know, going to a coffee shop and chatting with a barista or seeing people, you know, yeah. incidentally, like it's just not happening as much anymore. And so I've really been very intentional about replacing that. And I think that's had a huge positive impact on my well-being during this tough time. Mm, that's a beautiful, a beautiful challenge for all of us as we start to enter the world again, too. And we've forgotten what social stamina is and we've forgotten how to have conversations. I'm I'm excited for us to kind of enter with this new perspective and, and hopeful new energy that of how important this is for all of us. I love it. Yeah. And I think it's worth recognizing that we have to do that in a way that, again, has some self-compassion. You know, I you know, yeah. just got vaccinated. Woohoo, very exciting. And, and I'm starting to like see friends who've been vaccinated. And, yes. you know, I, I'm like out of practice. I'm like out of yes. the, like in real life social <laughs> practice. And yes. that's okay too, right? You know, you can take baby steps. You don't have to jump back in. And so giving yourself the grace to kind of come out of this tough time, however you need to, is also something yeah. I think is advice that we all need to hear. I think we can all take a deep breath because the one beautiful thing about it is that it's been a collective experience, which doesn't happen often. So we're all kind of at the same place in a beautiful way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one thing that I think has been so challenging about this time too, right? Is that, you know, usually if, if you're in a tough place, like your friends are okay, yes. your spouse is yes. okay, and, and vice versa. You know, if your spouse is going through a tough time at work, like you're doing all right. And I think 
one thing that's been so tough about COVID is like, we've all been going through this tough time together, right? We're all burning out. We're all feeling apathetic. And how great it is that we as a society can emerge as one, you know, with a new lease on life, a new lease on our social connection, a new lease on habits that we bring in. It can be a kind of collective fresh start that we all need. Yes. Amazing. Where can everybody find you, connect with you, listen to your show, find out more about what you do? Give us all of the places that we can connect. Yeah. Well, everyone should check out my podcast, The Happiness Lab, which you can get wherever you download your podcasts. You can follow me on Twitter at Lori Santos. And if you want to learn more about how to take the Yale class, because it's available online for free, you should check out Coursera.org and the class is called The Science of Wellbeing. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show today and for sharing your expertise and for shedding a light on such an important topic. This was such a treat. Thanks so much for having me. What a powerful interview with an incredible woman. I am just so excited about this episode and the message that we're sharing. And I think that if anything, it should cause you to pause and really take inventory. One of the things I love is how Dr. Lori talks about how our brains kind of trick us into pursuing the wrong things. And happiness sometimes lies in those unexpected moments, those times when we're actually present to what is happening. And I think it's a good challenge for all of us to get quiet enough with ourselves to really investigate, when am I most happy? What does that look like? Am I chasing the wrong things? How does the work that I'm doing today really show the values that I hold for myself and my future? I hope that you leave today feeling inspired and heck, I hope you leave feeling happy. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Gold Digger Podcast. Until next time, keep on digging your biggest goals. I'm over here giving you a virtual high five because you just finished another episode of the Gold Digger Podcast. Did that go by way too fast for anyone else? If you want more, head over to golddiggerpodcast.com for show notes and all the discount codes from today's sponsors. And if you're looking for a new crew of movers and shakers like you to bounce ideas and ask questions, be sure to join my exclusive community for gold diggers on Facebook. The link's waiting for you at golddiggerpodcast.com. Hey, Gold Diggers. Lately, I've been getting excited to finish furnishing our new home, which is why I want to tell you about a brand that we absolutely love, which is Article. I have been a fan and a customer of Article for years. I'm always blown away by the curated assortment of furniture styles they offer. They have mid-century modern, coastal, industrial, Scandinavian, and even boho designs. There is something for everyone, no matter your taste. In our last house, we had their sofa and leather chairs. At our lake house, we have their dining table and chairs. We also just ordered some of their outdoor furniture for our new patio. Like, if you can't tell, we are obsessed with Article. The quality and style are top-notch. Article's online-only model means that they can offer some great prices with fast and hassle-free delivery. Pick the delivery time that works for you, and they keep you updated every step of the way. Article's customer care team is also amazing. They're knowledgeable, friendly, and always there when you need them. If you're like me and you're itching to give your home a makeover, I highly recommend checking out Article. They believe in delightful design for every home. And thanks to their commitment to style, quality, and affordability, it's never been easier to transform your space. 
Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash gold digger and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash gold digger for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more.